Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts, and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. supporting each other through this and that came within the context of realizing that there really wasn't anything else that um, the non-birthing partners are exposed to um, when our partners became pregnant uh, they you know they were able to go to prenatal yoga and they started having meetings with with their midwives and that exposed them to a network of, of support services and then we hired a doula and the doula came with her own network of connections and there was just this kind of like uh, tribe of support surrounding uh, the birthing uh, partner, the partner that was going to give birth. And, and the, the, the support person for that process is kind of in the shadow, even to themselves. What, what, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to hold space for this event? And so... Uh, so we wanted we wanted to explore that. We knew that it was going to be different this time around. Michael had had, had you know uh, a particular kind of experience with the birth of his first son, and, and I'd never been through. I'd been a stepfather, so I'd never been through you know uh, the birthing process with a partner. Um, but we knew it was going to be something new for us, and we also knew that we we didn't have anybody that we could reach to uh, to to for help. There was, there was a time where all of the fathers that I knew, I, I made sure I tracked them down and I took them out for lunch. Um, and I said, you know, what's the most important thing that you can tell me about parenting? And, and they said, um, uh, they kind of looked at me like, well, nobody's asked me. And then they had to, they had to like sort of dig deep and, 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 and they, they would come up with, you know, pearls. It was wonderful, but... But it, it made me realize that I don't think we're having these conversations, and we're certainly not having these conversations in a in a sort of cultural forum. You know, I think me taking my friends out to lunch was was as cultural as it gets. And and in a way, writing emails at, at five o'clock in the morning to each other is as cultural as it gets so far. But we hope with this book by by publishing how I think we very naturally became transparent with each other. Uh, we hope to inspire that kind of uh, that kind of transparency for 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 everyone around family life, and to not edit it into self help really, but to but to understand that uh, simply the the presentation of the the reality of the experience is itself a therapeutic gesture. It 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 creates a it creates a situation in which people um, feel more enriched uh, in, in the mode of having conversation. So, so that was our, that was the evolved intention. Yeah. So we're going to read the first six letters yeah. and um, they're not really edited. And this is sort of the spirit of what it was like to email each other really early in the morning. Mm. And uh, then we'll have time for a break and then we can have a discussion. The first uh, letter, I'll just say, I won't go through this with every letter, but the first one is the ninth day of the ninth month, 2012. Matthew, the answer is yes. Let's begin emailing back and forth and see what happens. Last night, Karina and I watched a film on Russian water births. 
It must have been filmed in the 70s. Wood panels everywhere, maroon-fringed things, fur hats. The film begins with a partner and his wife making out in a glass tub, him rubbing her shoulders with his young hands. Then she reaches down between her legs as the camera films through the glass and starts rubbing the baby's head in small circles as it squeezes down and out into the water. Then, the strange angles of the arms popping out, seemingly with no elbows. Finally, you can see the umbilical cord. She rubs the mucus from the baby's eyes, lifts the baby's mouth from the water, and brings her lips to hers and sucks out any fluids. She moves the baby through water. I replayed the part where the baby's underwater, because I didn't realize the baby could be underwater for so long, because it hadn't yet been exposed to the air. I remember when my first yoga teacher, Patabi Joyce, said that the first inhale is birth, and that you die when you exhale. I had known that intellectually, but in the moment he said it, I felt in some way, I felt it in some way that's never left me. Anyways, the whole Russian film is relaxed, and the commentator, a woman, is talking through the process in a feel-good tone, saying, this is the way God intended birth. I wanted to yell out, what? God intended birth to go only one way? What about all my friends with unexpected hospital trips and unused birthing tubs, blue babies, premature babies? There's so many kinds of birth. On the one hand, it was amazing to watch these films of underwater births, in tubs, in the Black Sea, in living rooms. On the other hand, it left me in a mood all night. There's this middle path between these beautiful and perfect births and the birth of my first son, A. I'm a good sleeper, but I was tossing and turning last night, realizing that as much as we've talked about it, I have no idea what to do for the upcoming birth. We're due in seven months. Am I going to be in bed with Karina, or the tub, or the floor, rubbing her shoulders and kissing her? Or will I be bringing tea and watching the midwives help her? Will I be there arguing with doctors about what kind of stitches they should use after a C-section? I never thought of A's birth as a time where I was at a distance. But after watching the Russian water births, I realized I was observing the birth, I think, more than I was in it. How can I participate usefully? So the answer is yes. With us both expecting, I think it would be a good idea to talk this process through. <laughs> when A was born, it wasn't like I wanted to turn away, not at all. Somehow I felt like I needed to be so supportive of his mother that I think I lost track of what any other role would or could be. I was 28. His mother was a decade older. All I wanted was for her to be comfortable. We were surrounded by supportive women, and yet there was no talk of how I, the soon-to-be father, could support and be supported. So I turned, as I always have, to my practice. Yoga asana, sitting meditation, chanting, studying texts. I still wake up early every morning and sit. I light incense, chant, sway my body side to side until both of my sits bones are plugged into the cushion equally. I follow the inhale and the exhale in the channels of the nostrils and keep my gaze wide and still. As the breath settles, so does the firmness of my point of view. Viewpoints come and go, and the release is slow. The mind goes on and on trying to frame everything that comes in. Grasping, release. Grasping, release. My mind oscillates back and forth between what I want and what I want to avoid. The furnace turns on and off. The birds appear at the window. My son snores lightly in the next room. And every time I lose track of the breath, I start at the beginning again. So what do I want? And what do I want to avoid? This excites me. It haunts me thrills me, scares me, because it's not just the flickering in my brain in sitting meditation, but it's actually how I feel about becoming a father. I love being a father. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. 
A is turning nine. But I also see how I've grown cynical because my split with his mother was so painful for all of us. I thought I had healed, but when I see women in the park with strollers and diaper bags, I notice I'm jaded. I think they all look depressed. But it's not they who are depressed, it's my own eyes. In the time leading up to A's birth, now ten years ago, I lost track of myself. I was practicing Vipassana meditation. Concentration was coming along. In asana, I was working through the second series of the Ashtanga Vinyasa Krama that I was learning from Patavi Joyce and Richard Freeman. But I didn't know how I felt about becoming a father then. I had no idea what I needed for support. I see now I was at the thin end of a long rope. I was using meditation to get very concentrated. And in that concentration, I could enter realms with no thinking and no content. It was pleasurable and still, a relief from the constant thinking and wild emotions that tormented me in the day. I didn't have to think about my relationships or my doubts. I was almost beyond myself. In my 20s, that feeling of groundlessness was really interesting to me. But in relationship, it was all wrong. I was interpreting the absence of self-reference as the goal of practice. If I could get into a state of nothing, I would be free. That approach definitely reduced stress, but it was itself an unstable state. It wasn't helping my relationships necessarily. In yoga, I was doing advanced postures like backbends, but that didn't give me the tools to connect with my relational life. I was like two people, the monk and the householder, and they certainly weren't getting closer to one another. Ten years later, when my relationship with A's mother imploded, I was embarrassed that my practice couldn't help me. My heart was like a child. I was angry at her, at myself, at my practice. I saw I was using all these amazing internal states to avoid myself. I wasn't in my body. Now I'm living on the same street where A was born, in another house though, in an entirely different relationship. I've given up concentration practice and I'm more interested now in moment to moment mindfulness. I've replaced my youthful longing for transcendence with the craft of being fully in my life. I've given, uh, fully in my life. It was a long route I want to tell you about. I know you've taken a similar path, at least I think you've taken a similar path. I think of practice now in terms of intimacy. I'm interested in other people. You're supposed to laugh when I say that. I'm interested in other people. I've come to think that there is nothing other than relationships. The whole material world, which I love to no end, is nothing but relationships. And they go on and on. How do I love what's right in front of me without holding on? I've come around to the beginning of practice, but my interest has changed. Now my body, this city, my son, my son-to-be, the quality of life with Karina, the building of community, this is where I feel at home. It was never separate from me, but I couldn't see it then. The Buddha called waking up going against the stream the stream of culture, moods, habits, and addictions is sometimes impossible to break. In silent meditation retreats, like the ones I teach, I'm always interested in the fear that accompanies people on the first days. It can be life-changing if one stays with that fear. To see the stream of fear that prevents us from being still can be such a powerful experience that people will run away from meditation for years. Or they'll limit themselves to reading about it in the hope that a good sentence will wake them up without having to do the necessary work of training the body and mind to be open and fluid. Behind distraction is the fear of dropping into what's actually happening in our lives in present experience. But it seems easier just to freeze. In meditation practice, we summon the courage to face our lives wholeheartedly, what does it mean to practice with a whole heart? 
The question applies equally to parenting. Underneath our grand ideas of how things will go, what kind of person the child will be, how we'll be as parents, there's a deeper life moving in the dark. Do you feel this way, Matthew? <laughs> Do you ever feel how underneath everything we're doing, there's this deeper life going on? Love, Michael. <laughs> Dear Michael, <laughs> in birth prep class yesterday, our doula asked us to draw a picture of the journey we're about to undertake. She asked us to visualize a landscape with a path to consider what we would need and what we knew we had to leave behind. Alex took up red and green and blue pastels and unleashed broad strokes on the newsprint while she knelt on the floor. My hand went to a small piece of black charcoal with a point sharpened by use and started small in the lower left corner. My heart poured into the images of what I was leaving behind. I began with a window, a writer's window out onto the world, a frame of wood and glass. The world shaped by the frame, opening in wider angles according to my closeness, the glass cold to the touch. Every rented room, apartment, house, and cabin I've lived in has had such a window through which I've poured tens of thousands of hours of solitude. And then there is an inner window where I've been watching and waiting for a part of my life to begin, for someone to arrive, for someone, a part of myself, to open the frame to the larger world of wind and rain. On the desk beside the window ledge, I drew the artifacts of my intelligence, letters, numbers, signs, a ruler, and books. Alex's arm swept in long arcs, describing her coming labor, and I was drawing the small tools by which I had measured my ideas about life. When I told my best friend that Alex was pregnant, he grabbed me by the lapels and said, the dryness of your intellectual life is about to finally get some summer rain. The next day, Alex's father said, shaking and through tears, now you'll know what all the words are about, all of this mythology and literature. You'll understand what everybody's feeling and fighting over. The window will be thrown open as I leave this desk. Rain will splatter in and blur my notes and short out the laptop. I'm leaving so many things behind. My childhood, my extended childhood as an intellectual, <laughs> my first marriage to a dear friend I never see anymore. My love is concentrated here, but it has frayed edges as I install this shelf above the changing table and begin to boil bone marrow for the coming labor. But most of all, I leave behind the loneliness I have cherished and hidden myself within. I leave behind symbols as I prepare to touch the world, looking to the rest of my empty page, and then seeing in the corner of my eye that Alex has drawn a strong path through the woods to the ocean. Love, Matthew. Dear Matthew, your letter has me thinking about desks and tools and the things with which I surround myself. When A's mother and I split, she ended up with all the contents of the house. In response to your letter, I want to say something like, Matthew, I also know about leaving things behind. But the truth is, I'm still haunted. This teak desk faces a window. To my left is a black meditation cushion, and to my right, an altar with a small Buddha and an incense bowl. The Buddha sits on an almost square stone, likely slate, that I found last month on the shore of the Hudson River, just outside Saugerties, New York. In the first hours of the morning, the stone is a cold gray, but by seven the sunlight reveals lines of copper cut through the edges. When the Buddha is placed on the stone, it's off-kilter, and there's no way I can get it to stand straight. 
In the morning, I light incense and bow to the off-kilter Buddha. As with many Chinese versions of the Buddha, the face is female and the body is male. And sometimes I think the Buddha is just an off-kilter marriage, not so holy, not so caught in the mundane either. No matter what I do, I just can't get the Buddha straight. My office is small and sparse, painted the color of dry clay, with hundred-year-old baseboards that are chipped and have probably been painted twenty times. We moved here this year, and within four months we conceived. In the corner of this office, under the window, my son's Lego is piled up. He spent all weekend building an F-14 Tomcat, a fighter jet he saw Tom Cruise flying in the movie Top Gun. In our rush to get to school the first day of school on Monday, he dropped it, and I stepped on it. He howled. We argued for ten minutes about how he had to leave it in a pile because we were late for the first day of grade four. He didn't care. He just wanted to rebuild the plane that took him three days to create. So under the window, we each have our own altar. His is a blue, red, and and yellow Lego plastic mess. Mine, I can't get straight. When Karina was six six weeks pregnant, she went to the walk-in clinic because she had a bladder infection. She had A with her because I was teaching. It was evening. On the intake form, she wrote at the top in blue pen in very large letters, I am six weeks pregnant. I am here with my stepson. Please do not say anything. He does not know yet. As soon as the doctor walked in, he read the chart and said, So, you're six weeks pregnant. My son sat up. You're six weeks pregnant? He repeated a few times and then slipped from his chair onto the floor. Karina called me when I was done teaching, and a student drove me as fast as possible to the clinic. A stood there without coming towards me, and then let loose every swear word he knew. Then he looked straight at us and said, You assholes! I don't want another kid. Being an only child is the best part of my life. (laughs) When he calmed down a bit, we got in the car and drove west on college in silence. It was June. It was humid. I was watching all the young people in bike lanes, likely single, heading towards Little Italy, riding one by one. They were dressed immaculately, upright on their bikes, The evening, nothing but possibility. The sky was an open dark, and the bright buildings looked like faces. I watched the gears of the bikes, the pedals, the spinning spokes, and the hubs at the center turning slowly. We stopped at the drugstore, and A and I waited on the curb while Karina went to get a prescription. I told him how I felt when I was his age and learned I was going to have a sister who would be ten years younger than me. He started asking me questions about it, and then he said, Well, I'd rather have a brother, though I know you and Karina are probably going to have a girl, and if you do have a girl, I think you should name her Marin. (laughs) We played around with ways to spell the name. Marin, Marin. We held hands and walked to find a snack. Again, I was noticing the sidewalks filled with young, single people getting off their bikes, locking their bikes, some with helmets, most without. Jeans looked tight, skirts were short, sweat-stained shirts from the humid air. We got back in the car and drove home. Karina was feeling better and A was watching the city through the open window of the back seat. Karina drove the last leg home and I held her hand. Her hands are always warm. Matthew, your doula, Sam, was my my ex's doula. She had us do a similar drawing exercise. I drew a birth scene in which I was standing in the room, but there was no ground under my feet. There was pencil crayon blood, a relaxed mother post-birth, lots of paid professional women around to support her. But I was alone in the room with no ground. The drawing haunted me enough that I didn't speak about it much, ever. I wanted to give A's mother all the support she needed, but I didn't think much about what I needed. When Karina and I learned that we were pregnant, I made plans to go to upstate New York again on a silent retreat. 
I wanted to immerse myself in stillness, ritual, chanting, and that monastic life that I love. I drove to the center a day early and spent time in Hudson River Valley, two hours north of Manhattan, walking, thinking, swimming, alone. I found this square slate rock there. I knew when I found it, it would make a perfect altar. It was hot, and I drove into the Hudson, eyes closed, and swam as far as I could without opening my eyes. I'm not a good swimmer, but that whole day I wanted to be underwater, where I couldn't see where I was going forward. On the banks of the Hudson, where I, when I found the almost square stone, I promised myself I wouldn't go forward without ground to stand on. Not this time. In meditation practice, I can drop into places that don't have momentum, solidity, where there's nothing to hold on to, like swimming underwater with my eyes closed. But going forward with my family requires a whole other set of skills. What I'm getting at is really simple. The more domestic life takes over, the more I start thinking about windows. You think of yourself as a writer. I think of myself as a wayward monk or a priest of a temple with no walls, not an ascetic yogi in a forest or the Buddha who left his home. I'm struggling to figure out how these yoga and Buddhist teachings can come alive in modernity. Modernity includes my growing family, property tax, my love of neuroscience, art, ecology, my vegetable garden. So this is something I hope we can unpack together. How does spiritual life, rooted in ancient India and the halls of monasteries in Tibet and Japan, come alive in this new cultural context? I have no friends who firmly believe in reincarnation. I don't believe, like the Buddha did, that the earth floats on water. But I still feel like I'm a part of this invisible lineage, this long conversation through history about how to live a flourishing life. Buddhism looks entirely different in Burma than it does in Korea. What's this practice going to look like in the next century? Does a 21st century Buddha live in a home with solar panels? Does the Buddha change diapers? Will her Sangha hold same-sex marriages as a virtue? What happens to these teachings in Toronto in 2013? Since I've known you, you've had time to write and think and practice and read. Your stepchild is all grown up. Until A's mother and I split up, I found it difficult to balance practice, research, writing, and dishes, let alone getting to school to pick him up, spending long hours with him at the park, or biking through the city together, which was my favorite. It was never well balanced until, funny enough, we separated. Then, as difficult as that process was, and still is, I found time to be more present as a father, and also let the inner monk in me come alive again. So now Karina and I are talking a lot about how to put practice first for both of us, along with our relationship, and then let our family flourish because of our commitment to each other and this dharma. I think the saying goes something like, a healthy relationship is two people being alone together. I'd go further than that. In a certain way, I think I can never know Karina fully. How can we really know our partners? How can we know anybody? I can't even know the full extent of my own self. We are in constant flux, and maybe it's in that space that love arises. Matthew, how are you thinking about marrying your craft and your domestic duty? It's easy to say the two are one, but I'm not sure it's so easy in the long haul. Love, Michael. Dear Michael, in Ayurveda, they say to keep the windows shuttered for the first three weeks of baby's life. Week three introduces fire element, light, and visual form. Week one is sound and space. I bought a small finger piano to play for baby's first days. It has a gentle and melancholic ring. Week two is touch and air element, and they say this is where baby massage begins every day. 
I have all kinds of oils stocked up. Oils I advise for my clients when they're going through their own elemental rebirthing. My mother sewed the thick curtains that will shutter the windows in our small apartment. But now she has a broken hip, and she breaks into tears on the phone at the thought of not being able to climb the stairs to see baby, or at looking at our drawn curtains while sitting in the car in the street below. Baby comes in October, and we're hoping it will be warm enough to set up chairs on the sidewalk by the car, and maybe a folding table for tea. Our neighbor is an old Portuguese lady dying of cancer. Every day, her middle-aged children come and sit with her on the front patio in plastic chairs. I'm sure they'll lend us their chairs. If it's a Sunday, they might offer us barbecue chicken. Maybe I'll try to have mom and dad come especially on a Sunday. Sometimes Alex wants to talk with baby inside. She lies on the couch with her eyes closed and her hand holding the underside of the bump. After a while, I'll come and play the thumb piano beside her, and baby will roll and thump. My brother was born when I was A's age, and I remember being the diaper folder. I have a visual memory for many things, but I can't picture exactly how the folds go. I think when they deliver the diapers this week, I'll pick one up, close my eyes, and fold it by feel. My hands will remember, and I know I'll be able to change baby in the dark. I've been reaching towards these semi-conscious actions. Maybe within them I'll find a rounder intelligence. Stacks of baby... Stacks of... Stacks of baby... (laughs) Stacks Stacks of... Stacks of diapers... Hi, Lila. Stacks of diapers, stacks of unread books on my desk and a stack of empty moleskin notebooks as well. But it's the diapers that we'll be opening now. Yes, I have had time to read and research since you've known me, but there's been something hollow about it, perhaps because books have deferred a deeper need. Even the stuff I'm most entranced by, reading phenomenology and neuroscience through my years of asana and meditation practice, this has left me blank on many days. I would open a beautiful book, someone else's life work and baby, and I'd feel distracted, as though my flesh was being asked to set aside its own tasks. And this is where I feel the paradox embedded in the ethical prescription of svadhyaya. The the word actually translates as self-contemplation, but the commentaries say it means the study of scripture. But I've always felt a yawning gap between what's happening in life, and every language or model that attempts to describe it. The only scriptures I remember are those that tell me somehow to close the book. I've been chafing at something else. Self-contemplation puts a strange ceiling on learning. It turns windows into mirrors. In my dreams now, I hear a baby cry, and I rush to do something, or I calm myself down, knowing I can't help in the way my instinct tells me. My unread books sit closed in the sun this morning, but the cry in the night will open something else. It won't come from me, and it will open a part I do not know or did not choose to open. I'm ready to not choose. Funny, now that neuroscience is deconstructing free will, perhaps I am also more ready to sink into this choiceless condition. Through the bustle of your own family life, you have seen me blessed with a lot of time, and this is true in a stopwatch sense, but it was also time time that was burdened by self-direction, and I'm looking forward to what the new boss will have me doing, and what essential thoughts will squeeze out through the gaps in laundry. I want to string a laundry line from our second floor porch to the struggling oak tree in the yard. I remember hanging my brother's wash diapers on the line at my parents' house. In the winter, they would freeze stiff and flat as bookboards, smelling like the sky. When I was a baby, my mother wrote her master's thesis while I napped in the afternoon. I know this other woman writer who discovered that her daughter would sleep for an extra hour if she kept her awake by running her in the stroller through Trinity Bellwoods Park. So she finished a whole book of stories before baby turned two. 
And then there was my ex-wife, who wrote fragments of novels, while my stepdaughter, O, slept or made drawings. O, with her tussle of straw-colored hair and tiny, industrious fingers. And my ex, scratching out a sentence with her right hand and reaching for the teapot with her left, pouring without looking, her heart full of words, her flesh split the child, split between the child and the page. You didn't know me in that other family, which continues today, but in broken form. One of the reasons you've known me as a book hermit is that I'm a stepfather with an empty nest. O is 23 years old now, living in England. Running that stroller and writing while playing with baby are stories of parents in their 20s, I think. At 40, I don't feel this confluence and conflict of private and domestic arcs. I'm sure I'm speaking too soon, but I think I have less to accomplish now. <laughs> here's, here's how I think I know. For as long as I can remember, I've had two or three manuscripts in my head, fully formed, creating pressure, because writing them out takes an irritatingly long time. My discipline towards writing often reached a fever pitch of anxiety. I would think, I may die before I finish this book, and then I will be completely invisible. The morning after Alex and I discovered she was pregnant, I woke up completely relieved of that anxiety. I was never self-made, and now I really feel it. Perhaps I don't need to finish anything for now. Someone else will take this torch. Love, Matthew. Dear Matthew, it was enriching having you and Alex over for dinner last night, because since learning that we're pregnant, I haven't spent time with other expecting couples. The way you came through the door, excited about the home we've made here, investigating the stove, the deck, the lights, the food, the barbecue, I really felt your turn to the domestic, which is actually a turn that made me see our home in a new light. I'm just going to add came in the door of our, like it was his first time in this new house that we moved into, which was like a complete disaster of this house. He just comes in and, and he says hi to both of us, and then he starts walking around without us, checking out everything, looking at the stove, looking at the doorway, the baseboards, it was so sweet. I'm a friend of the mother slash writer who you referred to in your last letter. She is prolific and inspired. From how I know her, as a neighbor, she's totally present with her two kids, who are both a little older than A. Just yesterday, she sent me an email with a list of books she's reading, why I should read them, and details about how they impact the way she thinks about narrative. I mention this because in every way, you and I are having a conversation about the way the narratives that our lives are seemingly structured within are changing. Also that we're both figuring out how to prepare for the arrival of a child that we want to change us. Folding miniature sleeves. Laundry. Early morning dishes. Laundry. Walking the frosty grass at dawn, hoping Alex or Karina can get a few extra hours of morning sleep. The massive sky overhead. And knowing you are only blocks away. You said something in your last letter about studying the self. You know in Sanskrit, it's impossible to capitalize letters. So in my view, I don't like the notion that studying the capital S self is studying something exclusive, eternal, or larger than my life. The self is this person I am now. Excited, tired, fearful. Did I mention laundry? The 13th century Zen thinker and poet, Dogen, spoke clearly about practice and the self. Here's what he said. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by everything. So there's purpose to contemplate the moods, ideas, feelings, memories, peculiarities, and favorite neuroses that we think of as me and mine, 
We need to learn how to function alone and in relationship, in silence and at parties. But, Dogen says, the purpose of all this is to forget yourself. And to let go of who you think you are is to be enlightened by everything. Could he be speaking more clearly about fatherhood as a path of awakening? I like Dogen because if we follow his logic, studying the self is making a vow to include everything. This has for me the feeling of bhakti or devotion. Devotion is to feel an erotic relationship with what's right in front of us and then say, yes, I can become one with this. What does it mean to be one with what's right in front of you? When A was born, I relished waking up early in the morning and listening to his irregular breathing. For the first few months, I loved the smell of his head. Those moments gave me some kind of relief I can't explain. Same thing, know that smell? You probably still have a little bit of it. (laughs) I don't want to idealize the domestic or laundry or the smell of babies. It's also hard work. I'm interested in talking about, about the way the self is not separate from any of these things. Maybe a deep form of love includes hatred and frustration, the same way that mature creativity always includes destruction. I'm ready for the hard parts of fatherhood much more so than in the first round. I was younger. My relationship was rocky. Like I said, I lost track of myself. But ten years have passed. How about you, Matthew? When you became a stepfather, your stepdaughter was four. Certainly, you are not the same self now. Love, Michael. Dear Michael, your question woke me up very early. Surely, I am not the same self. And yet, I am. But... I've lived so many lives, but there's also a through line, a thread. I think this is a pre-Buddhist meaning of Dharma. My story has continuity. There's also something continuous about things that are perfectly round, like the moon and our partner's bellies. When we walked into your beautiful old house, I immediately felt house. And I started to vibrate with every house I've owned and patched up. I remembered the horsehair in the plaster lath of the old house in Montpelier, Vermont. Remembered taking down walls and figuring out how to frame a vaulted ceiling. Or the ruined apple orchard by the old farmhouse I bought with my ex in the mountains. And how I tried to make money harvesting the field of St. John's wort that grew yellow in July. I didn't make money but the red oil on my fingers lifted my depression and reconnected me to something that then became my career in Ayurveda. And always the wood, cutting it down, splitting it, laying it up to dry, and then smelling the hardened resin under the the ice the following year. There really is nothing like a wood stove you feed with the work of your hands that gives a clearer sense of how time burns and warms all of these things hurtling into the past. I have to confess I took vicarious ownership of your house for a few hours as well and worked up a mental tally of the costs you still face before winter. There's a lot of work to do, Michael. (laughs) Trim alone in the kitchen will cost close to a grand if you do it yourself. And it's got to get done or that pretty stove in your kitchen will do nothing but suck in the cold air. If you're a writer, you can learn to use a miter box and enjoy the excruciating pleasure of measuring unequal lengths of baseboards along funky old walls. The measurements are like people's stories and the strange angles at which they join. But I know you don't have the time now, even if you had the skill. Krishna says, yoga is skill in action, and in this case, skill would equal time, and time would equal money, and money buys firewood to keep baby warm. Our tapas is not just internal now. So it wasn't until the second glass of wine that I let your house be your house again. Funny how adding up flooring costs takes a kind of responsibility for your life as my friend, but it happens with your family as well. I look at Karina and I think about what she'll need in the third trimester and postpartum, and 
play for a moment in my mental apothecary, wondering if I'd change the ingredients for her batch of the perineal salve I just made for Alex. Or I feel A's overflowing excitement at being ten, and I want to give him a quiet voice to double your own to tell him the story of how my brother was born thirty years ago, how I saved his life in the lake that day he was three, how we are still connected through all of this change, how he will always be my brother, how even now he clings to my neck with his small arms, wet and cold, shivering and terrified. Something remains and threads through, even in old Dogen's life, I bet he had a favorite lettering brush and particularly well-worn robe for sitting in the frosty morning, and the sounds of his own baby's irregular breathing echoing the implicit memory of his own childhood and how light sliced down through the rice paper between the slats, or in shorter measure, how this season carries the wisdom of the last time it was this season, or how this relationship carries a love burnished by the last. I was 22 when I fell in love with my ex and left my entire life in Toronto to live with her in Europe. I met her on my first morning of my first trip abroad on an Arts Council writing grant in May. In June, I asked her to come to Prague, where I was writer-in-residence for an art symposium. In July, she flew back to the States. After she left, I almost died of a fever in the old monastery I was working in. In August, I'd recovered, so I followed her back to Vermont, thinner and burning with change, to meet her daughter, O, and stay together for a week at her family's cottage. In September, I sold my books and the few things I had. In October, I packed an army surplus duffel bag and flew to Dublin with $100 in my pocket and a half-finished novel on my dinosaur laptop. Today it seems I could not be more different from that child on that plane in 1994, alienated from my family, enraged at my uselessness in the world, and, what do you know, committed to nothing but remaking family and utility unconsciously with this strange and beautiful woman and her strange and beautiful child. I married into the dream of a wished-for heroism. I loved without knowing who I was. You can do it but it's fragile. Knowing more of who I am, which is something I've come to slowly, I've come to slowly, but with groundedness, is the frayed thread that binds frayed edges together. So I found myself in Alex's strong arms saying, this is what has happened so far. I am a work in progress. So different was I, And yet, as I write out bits of the story, my fingers fly without thought, so deeply ingrained is this thread. Yes, I have told it many times to myself and to others, with shifts through time, and it has served me as a story, but it is not entirely tricking me or concealing an absence of self-existence, as the Buddhism I studied in my thirties might claim. It's not just a story, as I hear the New Agers say. Rather, it seems to wrap around a core of memory that combines with present exposures and future expectations that are as simple as knowing at a glance that you've only laid up an eighth of the firewood you need for this winter to form the only self I could ever know. Last night before sleep, I was overcome with a panic and had to hold Alex almost too tightly. She doesn't mind. She's all warm earth and water. Alex, who now surrounds this sphere of her belly. We call her belly the moon, the watermelon, the world. And I found myself almost clawing at her as though I wanted to get inside with baby and be at the source and beginning of things. She asked me, do you feel distant from baby? Maybe this is where the invention of the soul comes from. Men feeling something raw and essential growing in the women they love, something swelling and invisible, something inaccessible, not inside them, something they are holding, or maybe even withholding. I don't feel distant. I just can't get close enough, and it hurts, and I don't want to shut down because of hurt. 
our continuity is not inside us as people who don't give birth, and writing is a poor substitute. And so I embrace this belly that Alex both is and is embracing, and I try to capture it, to eat it up. I now understand that particular mythological horror of fearing the demon awaiting the birth so that he, it's always he, can gobble up the baby. The image is simply the shadow of what I think may be a masculine need to continue to enter, to devour the center of things, to reach the soul, something unifying and sense-making, a life one would call my life. I soothe myself by singing to her belly, a poem by Blake, a song by Cohen, an old Catholic plain chant. Alex feels baby wriggle with pleasure. Baby's head is down and low, sinking into Alex's pelvis. Putting downward pressure on that threshold, I've crossed with my upward surge back into love. Today, we're going to the medical supplies store to buy a plastic sheet for our bed to catch the birth water. We don't have a wood stove in our little apartment, but I have an old oil-circulating space heater that I've carried with me since the farmhouse days. I used to sit with my back against it as I wrote or meditated through the long Vermont winters. The midwife said we need a space heater for giving birth at home. The space heater's out in the garage with all of the other things from my previous life that are with me but have not yet been integrated into this love and this family. So I think I'll bring it in later this afternoon and give it a good cleaning. Love, Matthew. Thank you for listening. Um, maybe we should just have a break now and have some time to metabolize. Yeah. That. And more tea. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>